0: My previous work, I always started with the, uh, this idea that's in uh, the free and virtuous society, towards a free and virtuous society, uh, and that gives us four tidy little principles. You know, but this guy's here, and he's, he's reminding me that there's more than four, okay? There's more than four. Um, and this idea the preferential option for the poor comes to mind and say I have to do something in that area. At the same time, I, in the spin world we have out there, one day globalization's terrible, and the next day it's, it's a pretty great thing. So I'm thinking, you know what, what's underneath this? Uh, so I wanted to go at a personal level, at least start to peel back the onion and try to understand what's the situation of the poor, okay? So I found this paper from 2013, Branko Milanovic, uh, Global Inequality in Numbers, History and Now. Okay. And I got into that a little bit. And uh, at the beginning of the paper, there's, a, there's technical definitions for economists who can probably take me to task and challenge me even more to understand it. But basically, there's these three ideas of measuring inequality. One is you take the inequality from each country and you weight just an equal. So we, you weight China's inequality equal to ours, equal to the smallest country in the world and you add them together. The next you take the average for the country, but you weight it to the size of the country. And finally, which is a much more challenging measure, is you actually put the whole world across here and you try to understand how the whole world, the inequality is for the whole world. This wasn't really possible uh, historically, uh, and they only started tracking this uh, a few years ago. So this is the graph from the report. Okay, so um, again, concept one, concept two and concept three. You can see that only since 1990 have they measured it, and in the report it actually talks about the fact that uh, uh, early measures had pretty poor sample sizes in places like Africa, uh, but now that it's, now it's up to maybe a, a reasonable measure, but there's lots of challenges to get at these Gini coefficients and things like that but i'm 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 hearing all of this about- gl- global inequality increasing, and i yeah okay, from nineteen fifty through two thousand concept one inequality has increased it was sort of two stepwise chunks here along the way, but it was a steady march, i agree um, but since two thousand it's been going down, okay, so if you're living if you're thinking about the up until 2000, then I can see what you're talking about. But if uh, at 2000 on, I, I don't understand why you're saying that uh, global inequality is uh, increasing. By the way, in the, uh, in the paper, uh, Franco calls this the mother of all inequality disputes because uh, getting at really what's happening might be quite disputable. Concept two had a slow decline up until 1990, and then a pretty rapid decline. The data here is uh, limited, but in fact, even with concept three, it seems to be declining. So I say to myself, what's what's all this rhetoric about inequality growing? And and, um, this in no way, uh, let me preface it with, tries to diminish the, the terrible situations that the poor are facing. I'm just trying to look at the data and understand it. Um, The other graph that's in the report, which is a tricky graph to sort of get your head around, change in real income between 1988 and 2008, various percentiles of global income distribution, okay, in 2005 international dollars. So the axis shows percentage change in real income measured in constant international dollars, horizontal axis percentile in the global income distribution, Percentile positions run from 5 to 95, but then they add one just for the top 1%. Okay? So, in fact, this measure is from 95 to 99, and then this is just from 99 to 100. So, yes, indeed, the top 1% in that period saw an increase of over 60%. That's 70 million people, maybe, in our world. In the middle, from uh, not the fifth it's probably from the yeah I guess it's from the fifth because this measure is actually fifth to the tenth maybe it's from the tenth anyway this is great news this is great news five billion people saw between 40 and 75 percent increases in their real income you might call the losers this maybe the upper middle class okay so five billion people 1.7 1.7 million people, 70 million people, uh, and sadly, the case, the lowest 50 percentile of about 350 million people only saw an increase of 15% in real income. Looking at some other data, um, GNI per capita, we see, you know, we, we, have to, we have to look into Sub-Saharan Africa, and we have to look into the countries actually. And, and, you know, for Christ we have to get on to the individual person, but um, this is how we go about it to start, I think. So you see as a a group, Sub-Saharan Africa, as a region, has gone from say $600 a year up to $1,700. Nigeria started a lot lower, and they've built themselves up to $3,000 a year. Each one of these countries is probably worth a 25-minute presentation but just to get an idea. Zimbabwe, which you see some of the challenges in Africa, started at 670, drifted down to 300, and brought itself back up to 830. Uh, Now, if you put this in perspective, what's China done? They started in 96 to be pretty much on average like Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, And you see, this is the result of their um, open market policies. It's the big story, it seems. Uh, and just to get an idea, Indonesia has done something a little bit different. But you know, yeah, you have to put this in perspective. Uh, you know, what, 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 what's going on there? The last measure I took a look at is this Human Development Index uh, long life, education, decent standard of living. Uh, and you see Sub Saharan Africa. 38, 40, 45, 50. China started a little ahead of them, but much better, and Indonesia as well. So, you know, you ask yourself, what holds back a given country versus another? And that's a big question. Again, that's a, that's a whole conference probably. Um, I found a copy of this number of years ago. I think it's not on the web anymore, but Goldman Sachs, those, uh, those evil capitalists, they did this uh, research where they developed this idea of the BRICS and the Next Eleven and everything else I got. And this is how they do their research. In other words, this is how they calculate the economic conditions of the growth environment score, they call it, right? The growth environment score. So all of these things, all of these things contribute to economic growth. So you know it's it's more than just marketing. Uh, Gapminder is a fun website. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go a little bit fast here. Uh, anybody been to Gapminder.org? You ought to go. It's really cool. Anyway, so it's an interactive tool. Um, the size of the circle is the population. That's the life expectancy. This is the GDP per capita. If you're keeping track, it's a log scale. Uh, But you see China. But you also see some of the challenges of Africa. Rwanda started here. They had genocide in 94. But they've come back and they've found a way forward. And there they go. Uh, Angola, civil war. But they found a way forward. So you see that uh, a number of the African countries are seemingly moving ahead. But one of the challenges in Africa is corruption, uh, dictators, uh, all of these different things. And uh, in fact, sometimes com- countries that have more resources are more poor, right? That's another thread that you see out there. Uh, and then, real quick, you know, this is, this is what's happened since 1990. And the UN wanted to reduce extreme poverty by 2015. They did that. I don't think they did it. I think globalization did it, but leaders from countries participated, naturally. Uh, It wasn't just the UN. Um, But at the global level, there's still 800 million people who are living in extreme poverty. Okay, so what I did for the rest of the paper, again, this is my partially completed aspect. What I wanted to do is to look at um, different approaches in marketing to to engage the poor and do business with them, okay? Uh, C.K. Pralhad, Stuart Hart, they, they wrote a paper in 2002, Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Uh, you know, the idea behind that paper, am I doing okay on time? Yeah, good, um, You know, the idea behind that paper, let me just tell you, was The real source of emerging market promise is not the wealthy few in the developing world, nor even the emerging middle-income consumers, it is the billions of aspiring poor who are joining the market economy for the first time. So uh, they had this idea that the the poor, and to be fair to Prahalad, he he, he lopped off four billion people at the bottom of the pyramid, and within that four billion, there's a big range of things going on, okay. And he said that uh, you know, and he brought he came some, brought some cases in where uh, uh, businesses were developed. Uh, and the idea, some of the ideas in there is that if you if you do a technological breakthrough, if you do smaller package sizes, uh, he never relents on quality. He thinks you should be able to sell the same quality uh, to these uh, markets. Um, you can be successful. A couple of years later, Anil Karnarni at Michigan Ross, he wrote this paper about the mirage at the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, and when I get my head around that one, and I, I have, I mean, that one makes more sense to me because if you think about the poor living on $2 a day and you bring them a small sachet of uh, high quality shampoo, they're gonna have to make a conscientious decision to not buy some other things. And there's problems with their choices. Uh, the poor sometimes make bad choices, that speaks to education, all of those things. Uh, um, but in Karnani's analysis, uh, Prahala thought there was a $13 trillion market here, and Karnani's assessment is that it's less than a half a trillion. Um, and during that paper, he mentions, uh, oh wait, he, he has this sort of middle ground he uh he critiques prahalad and then he uh mentions he's going to have an alternate but he he also in between there he mentions this idea that there is a true solution where if you reduce the quality, explain it to customers that it's reduced so in a truthful way um, that in that scenario you can probably find products and he uses the product of a soap called Nirma in, uh, in India. Uh, that reminded me, I have some friends I used to work in industry, they've moved through Tuck into GE now and uh, GE's working a lot on reverse innovation. <clears throat> the idea is there that in the past we would take uh, a power plant that we can maintain in Poughkeepsie or in uh, Munich and we would somehow or another change it a little bit to take it to the Indian market. They can't maintain it. They don't have the tolerances. They don't have the machines. So what GE has done and in, famously in, in ultrasounds and also in, say, uh, power plants, is they've created development teams in India to develop products originally there that will work in the Indian marketplace, all the while plugged in to GE Schenectady and other places in GE. So uh, that's encouraging, that's encouraging. Uh, I found a very interesting paper towards the end. Again, it's a partial bridge I'm telling you about. Uh, uh, these three authors, they took sort of the best of these, and they've kind of come up with different solutions work for different situations. If you, it depends on whether you want to have a sustainable or an unsustainable initiative, and it depends on the income level where you are in the BOP, because at the bottom billion, it's a lot different than the three billion just above them in income. Uh, my idea was to then put these out there and then put on the lens of Catholic social doctrine, thought, and say, what does, what does our Catholic social doctrine say about these three or four approaches? Uh, I have a feeling things like reverse innovation uh, uh, and uh, oh yeah, Kanani. I just I could let me just share one quote from Kanani uh, on his alternate. I forgot to share that with you. Um, his idea, uh, going along with Prahalad, is this whole idea of microfinance. Okay, and uh, it seems that the jury's still out on on the real impact of that. Okay, uh, there's a few heartwarming stories but then the real impact of microfinance is not so clear out there. But the Kinarny says, rather than lending $200 to 500 women so that each can buy a sewing machine and set up a microenterprise making garments, it might be much better to lend $100,000 to an entrepreneur with managerial capabilities and business acumen and help her or him to set up a garment manufacturing business employing 500 people. Now the business can exploit economies of scale, deploy specialized assets, and use modern business processes to generate value for both its owners and its employers. So that's kind of Cunarney's big alternate. Uh, And then as a result of this, maybe I'd have a really good set direction on the bottom billion for our marketing students and maybe the three billion above them and try to understand what approaches make sense from, you know, a Catholic and if I make a second cup of coffee one morning, maybe even a Franciscan way. Uh, Last comment, I did choose this case uh, which is mentioned in Prahalad for the course this semester. Uh, It's an interesting case. Anybody ever heard of the Aravind Eye Hospital? Um, uh, A doctor in India he came up with this idea of building a hospital for cataract surgery. And what he's done is he's built one hospital on one block of the town for the more affluent customers. And he brings them the something you and I might be able to get access to. And then he builds another hospital, worked on with volunteers at the, at the beginning uh, to bring indigent people in for it's a it's a lower cost operation but compared to not having an operation the benefit is huge okay um and this hospital they cross subsidize with uh funds from the affluent hospital and then they also plug this into other organizations like rotary international to get people there okay so uh it's a uh, you know It seems like it's one of these sort of hybrid approaches that actually makes sense from a business standpoint, and it also serves uh, uh, the benefit of people who couldn't afford the services.